if you turn in your Bibles to Revelation chapter 2, uh, I'll begin reading from verse 8. So that's Revelation 2 from verse 8. And we read there, To the church in Smyrna write, These are the words of him who is the first and the last, who died and came to life again. I know your afflictions and your poverty, yet you are rich. I know the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not be afraid of what you are about to suffer. I tell you, the devil will put some of you in prison to test you, and you will suffer persecution for ten days. Be faithful, even to the point of death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He who overcomes will not be hurt at all by the second death. Well, as I look to this passage at the church we're going to focus on tonight, as I look to this, it got me thinking about human endurance, about human perseverance. And I was doing that and looking around as I do, looking at daft things, and I came across... The amazing story of someone called Ashrita Furman from the USA. And this is someone who holds the world record for brick carrying. He carried a nine-pound brick in one hand for 64 miles on the 13th to the 14th of June, 1993. And I won't bother you with all the details, but he also holds the world record for joggling. That's juggling and running at the same time for gluggling which is underwater juggling and that's 48 minutes milk bottle balancing he once walked 70.16 miles with a milk bottle on his head so don't send him for the message you'll never get him back more recently among other things (laughs) He's broken the record for endurance yodeling. I don't know if the endurance is how long he yodeled or how long people had to listen. And also for backwards unicycling. In 2009, he became the first person to hold 100 Guinness World Records all at once. His most recent world record set, I believe, last year is for the number of watermelons sliced on his stomach, 26 in one minute. Now that, I think, could be quite dangerous. How sharp was that knife? I don't know. Now, you might think, you probably do, who cares? What does it matter what some crazy man does? And, of course, in a sense, that is right. But doesn't it also, in a sense, make it even more amazing that a man could dedicate himself to doing these kind of things. Doesn't that tell us at least something about the perseverance, or at least the potential perseverance of the human spirit? Well, we're going to look together tonight at a much more noble example of perseverance, of endurance, of faithfulness. Something that really is an example for us to look to, to seek to emulate, and that does have lessons to teach us. That is, we're going to look together at this letter to, this story of the church at Smyrna. For of the seven churches of Revelation, 
This is one of only two to, re to receive the unreserved approval of Jesus. Now, that makes this church at Smyrna a noticeable church, doesn't it? But, but what makes it for me even more notable is that this church, situated in the city of Smyrna, that's now called Izmir in modern Turkey, this church is the only one of the seven churches of Revelation never to have died out. Situated there in the heart of Turkey, facing the onslaught of Islam and all the resulting pressures that have been brought to bear upon it, this church has kept on going now for around 2,000 years. So do you think this is a church from whose example we might have lessons to learn? I tell you, I most certainly do. And let me tell you now what I believe is the basic lesson that we can learn from the Smyrna church. And it's the lesson of problems and a principle. This is the lesson that in different ways we're going to try and open up together and explore. Because we all have problems, don't we? Our problems might be very different. Some of us, for example, might be dealing with the, the pressures of unemployment, of not having a job. Others of us dealing with the pressures of having a demanding job that perhaps at the moment seems to threaten to overwhelm us. We all have different problems. And some of us, some people, seem to have a, a lot of problems, more than the average, though I would uh, caution you that things aren't always what they seem. Those people who don't think they've got any problems are sometimes wrestling with a lot more than you can imagine. But all of these things, though, are things we can't really do a lot about. But let me tell you something that does worry me. And that is the way that some Christians react to, the way they deal with their problems. And that almost every problem they have becomes a crisis. Every problem seems to shape their life and more importantly, their faith to its very foundations. But that shouldn't be so. And it won't be. Not if we learn the lesson found here in the church at Smyrna. And so build our lives, build our faith on true, key, biblical, spiritual principles that again and again we can return to, like a map, a guide to a maze, which if you're like me, because of our limitations, we're not immediately able to understand and, and find our way out. Yet at least having that map gives the reassurance that there is a plan, that there is ultimately a way out. And so in life, there is a reason for, there is a way through, and there is an end. There is an end to all we go through. So let's try and learn then the lesson of the church at Smyrna by looking first of all at their situation, and then at their problems, and then at their principle, or the principle of principles. And the first thing we can say about the situation of this church and these Christians is that they lived in one of the most beautiful cities in the Roman Empire. The city of about 200,000 people, and it had a famous stadium. It had a renowned library, and it had the largest theater in the whole of Asia. It was a city of culture, a city of class. You could almost say it was the Glasgow of the Roman Empire. 
The Hamilton even. Let's go that far. But you will notice, you'll notice that at the beginning of Jesus' message to this people, that he introduces himself here as the first and the last who died and who came to life again. Now, this is something that we see consistently as we go through these letters to the churches. But a different descriptive phrase taken out of the initial vision of Jesus given to John in Revelation 1, 10 to 13. A phrase is taken out and applied to each church in turn in a relevant way. So why then is this phrase chosen for the church at Smyrna? Well, surely partly, as we'll see, because of the message he goes on to bring them. Because how important it will be for this church to know that their God reigns supreme. That he is Lord of both life and death. But also, I think we can see something in this of an appeal to the, to the character of the people of Smyrna themselves. For you see, their city had died. Their city had been burned to the ground by invaders about 600 years previously. But due to the perseverance, the faithfulness, the hard work of the people of Smyrna, their city had risen like a phoenix from the ashes to be more beautiful than even before. And this perseverance, this this character of the inhabitants of Smyrna is, I think, underlined in the way that of all the cities of Asia, they alone were chosen by Rome, honoured by Rome in AD 26 with the privilege of being allowed to build a temple for the worship of the then Caesar Tiberius. With this being a reward for the fact that for over 200 years, through thick and thin, when Rome wasn't the dominant world superpower, times when Rome was under attack, times when revolution was in the air, and yet that through it all, Smyrna had remained faithful and true. So you see here Jesus, before he shares with with this people, he reminds them. Yes, he reminds them in the main guess of who he is. The Lord who reigns even over death. The first and the last who died and rose again. But he also appeals to their character as a faithful, persevering people. But this is a An ominous message, is it not? This message from the Lord. Why does he write in this way to Smyrna? Why? To a people who so obviously had pleased him. Why? Because, as we've suggested, because of the position that they were in, because of the problems they were facing, and what potentially these problems could then lead to in the future. So what were these problems? Well, certainly there were problems in the the shape of persecution from the society around them. Verse 9 says, I know your afflictions and your poverty. Now, Asmana was known then to be a very wealthy city, one of the wealthiest cities in the Roman Empire. Then it seems reasonable because of this to surmise that these Christians here were poor because they were coming under attack as a result of their faith. Maybe they were having property confiscated by the authorities on trumped-up charges. Or perhaps they were 
suffering vandalism of some kind at the hand of their bigoted pagan neighbours. Alternatively, it may have been hard for them to find employment because they refused to compromise with pagan standards because pagan employers were suspicious of them. And we read of something like this happening in Acts chapter 19 in the record there of a riot in the neighboring city of Ephesus organized by a man, Demetrius, the silversmith, a man who was outraged because of the impact Christianity was having on his sales of silver idols and shrines. And then in Hebrews 10, 34, we find evidence there that rather than that being an isolated incident, that what this actually was, was an example of a more widespread problem. For there we read, uh, addressed to those receiving this letter, we read that you sympathized with those in prison and joyfully accepted the confiscation of your property because you yourselves had better and lasting possessions. And then it would also seem, following on from this, that here at Smyrna, this situation that was bad enough in itself was worsened as, we, as it was exploited by the Jews of the city. Those who John, inspired by the Lord, actually even goes as far as to say were not true Jews. They weren't living as the people of God because he says, verse 19, they say they are Jews, and they are not. They are a synagogue of Satan. Now, we've talked previously in earlier weeks about the relationship at this time between Christians and Jews. So let me just repeat the, the bare bones. And that is that at this time period, Judaism was one of the few recognized religions of the Roman Empire. And what this meant was that the Jews were allowed to practice their faith without being compelled into paganism, worshipping the gods of Rome in the empire. But you see, in the early days of Christianity, Christianity was viewed by Rome as being just a, another branch, another variant of Judaism. So initially, the early Christians too were allowed to practice their faith untroubled, unhindered. But then the Jews began to get more and more irritated, first by the success that, that Christianity was having in making converts, both from within Judaism, but particularly from among the, the Gentile God-fearers who used to hang around the edges of the synagogues. However, after AD 70, this irritation matured into outright anger and rage, because in this year, as the result of their revolution against Rome, Jerusalem, and particularly the temple, were burned as punishment. Now, rightly, Christians, you see, they saw this as the fulfillment of prophecies given by Jesus. Matthew 24, verse 2, and they saw this as God's judgment on the Jews. But this threw the Jews into an absolute frenzy, that Christians were saying that they, the chosen people of God, were under his judgment. And so to get back at Christians, these Jews began to make it clear to the Romans, hey, Christians have got nothing to do with us. They have nothing to do with us. So they shouldn't be allowed to worship as they want. 
They should be forced to worship Caesar. They should be forced to worship Rome's gods, just like everybody else. But more than that, why do you think they don't want to? Is it just because they think they're better than everyone else, better than you Romans, bad enough in itself? Or is it because they are the kind of stubborn, determined people who want their own way, the kind of people who one day might dare plot and revolt against Rome. Now, I can't be exactly sure what the Jews of Smyrna actually said about the Christians, but what we do know and can be sure of is what it says here in verse 8, that they slandered them. So, personally, I don't think we're too far off. And yet, terrible though this is, what is already happening Yet what the Lord says here to this church is that for some of them, there is even worse to come. That all of this is going to culminate in something even more terrible. Verse 10 says, Do not be afraid of what you are about to suffer. I tell you, the devil will put some of you in prison to test you, and you will suffer persecution for ten days. Be faithful, even to the point of death, and I will give you the crown of life. Now, you see, in the, the Roman world, imprisonment itself was not a punishment. Imprisonment was simply a way of holding people under guard while they awaited punishment. So the punishment here is the persecution we're taught, taught of for ten days to the point of death. Now, there are a variety of theories about what the significance is of the, the ten days that are mentioned. But the one that I find both most interesting and convincing is that Smyrna as a city was famous for its gladiators and its games, the great Roman games, some of which lasted for ten days. Now, I don't think it's pushing things too far to see that here the Lord was warning the church at Smyrna that for the sake of the gospel, some of them might have to suffer and die at the end of a gladiator's sword or in the jaws of a wild beast. Those then are the problems that this church faced. I have to bring you out in a cold sweat just thinking about it. But you know, maybe we think that that's as far as our identification with these people can actually go. Simply feeling for them in their situation. But I don't think it is. I don't think that is as far as it can go. No, I believe that there is a critical, vitally important, fundamental problem that these people faced here that is every bit as present and relevant in our society today as it was then. And that is the simple question, why? Why didn't God do something about this situation? I mean, he loved this people. They had obviously pleased him. And he's all powerful. So why then? Why, instead of sending words of warning, words of preparation, why didn't he just deliver them? That's the question we're going to try and answer now as we move on to look at the principle, at the basic biblical spiritual principle 
That while it doesn't maybe fully explain every situation we find ourselves in, every problem that we face, he that I do believe gives us a rock to hold on to when perhaps our life seems to be falling apart. What is this, this principle? Well, in a sense, you know, it's very, very simple. It is. And yet, in our flesh, in our humanity, it's one that we shy away from. It's one that we don't really want to know. It's one that we struggle to, to embrace. And it's also something, it's a spiritual principle that the devil longs to keep us from, to pluck even from our memory. So what is this principle then? It's that this world, this life, is not the most important part of our existence. And going on from this, what is most important in this life is not that we be happy, blessed, and fulfilled. That is a, a welcome byproduct that both we and, and the Lord enjoy when it happens. But no, the most important thing in this life for the Christian is that God be glorified in us, in our circumstances, whatever they might be. Whatever they might be. And also, that through our circumstances, through what we experience in life, that we might be better prepared for heaven, for the life to come. Now, in these verses in Revelation 2, do you see that, that principle? Do you see it there? Or maybe better, more accurately connected principles. Verse 9. He says, I know your afflictions and your poverty, yet you are rich. Do you see it? Poor, persecuted, in this world, yet rich. Rich. Because in Jesus Christ, they've got what really matters. They've got a relationship with Jesus. Salvation, eternal hope, spiritually rich. Rich in the things of God. Then verse 11. To a people who are called to be ready to die, ready to be martyred for the faith. What does the Lord say to them there? He who overcomes will not be hurt at all by the second death. Now what this is saying is that in this life you may be persecuted. You may be judged. You may even be put to death by men. But fear not. Because in the life to come, in the eternal judgment, in the final spiritual judgment, then you will have nothing to fear. For Satan, hell, eternal punishment will not then touch you. And as for this thought of God's glory being all important, well, in verse 10, the Lord says, be faithful even to the point of death, and then he goes on, and I will give you the crown of life. Do you see, there's the, the thought here of us receiving glory, receiving the crown of life in the world to come. Why? Because we have been faithful. Because we've done what's most important. Because we've lived for God's glory in this life. And put all this together, let me share with you a wonderful quote. I think it's wonderful. Uh, from Stephen Travis. He says, why doesn't God do something? John has the hint 
of an answer. It is that God shows himself not normally in acts of dramatic power like Zeus hurling thunderbolts from the heavens, but in the suffering itself. Christ won his victory over evil by giving himself to suffering in such a way as to draw its sting. And this is the wonderful bit. The whole story of God's dealings with the world is cross-shaped. And when people offer their suffering to God rather than railing bitterly against it, he uses it for the healing of the world. Now, do you get that? God does sometimes deliver his people dramatically, miraculously, but not always. Not even often. What far more often God does or wants to do as we give ourselves to him is he wants to work in us so that his glory might be seen in the midst of our suffering. Seen as by drawing on him, by drawing on his resources, we are then able to react to our suffering in a way that this world cannot understand. Because you see, the world can explain miracles away. They can and they have, but they cannot explain away a faith that exists, that even flourishes in the midst of hardship and pain. So you see, when we're going through a a tough time, what so often we say is, why doesn't the Lord act? Why doesn't God do something about what I'm going through, what others I love are going through. You know what I believe the Lord is so often looking on and, and is saying is, why don't you react differently that my glory might be seen? Why don't you? Now, you know, as I say this, I know that there are some who would seek to align themselves to Christianity in our day who would strongly dispute what I'm saying. They would say that it's always God's will that a Christian be wealthy, healthy, and happy. And if they're not, then it's their fault. It's because they're not walking in faith, because they're not walking close enough to the Lord. Now, my reaction to this is that the problem of these people, some of whom may be well-intentioned, the problem is that they are applying woodenly, without imagination, Old Testament promises to New Testament believers. For I've said, as I've said to you before, with the Old Testament, we shouldn't normally apply literally every detail to ourselves. Rather, what we should do is we should look for the main underlying principles of the Old Testament and apply them. So you see, the underlying principle here is that God will bless, will always bless, those who are faithful to him. Now, in the Old Testament, in the early stages of the development of the people of God, this was understood mainly in terms of the material. It was understood there in terms of health, wealth, happiness, etc. Although there was at times the hint of something more. For example, Psalm 22, verse 1. A good name is more desirable than great riches. However you see, in the New Testament, as critically, and this is critical, as God's Spirit is given to all of the people of God. So they come to treasure the things of the Spirit 
more than the flesh and blood and bricks and mortar of this world. And so you see, now God blesses the faithfulness of his people in the spirit. That is, in spiritual ways, rather than with the physical and material. Now, at times, God does still bless materially the faithfulness of his people. He does, particularly when he knows that his particular people will use these resources well for the sake of his kingdom. But still, the most precious blessing for the true believer will always be the blessing of the Spirit in the Spirit. And to say that true believers should always be healthy, wealthy, etc., that that's the blessing of faith, and when the reverse happens, that's a, a sign of our faithlessness. Well, that, I believe, is unbiblical nonsense in the light of the clear teaching of the New Testament. I mean, how does that stand up in the light of what Jesus says in Mark 10, 25, about it being easier for a camel to pass through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom? How does that stand up in the light of the life of Jesus or any of the apostles? How does it stand up in the, life of, in the light of the life of this church here at Smyrna, commended by Christ because of their faithfulness and yet poor and persecuted and about to face martyrdom? And how does it stand up? Just for one example, in the light of the life of the most famous son of this church, a man by the name of Polycarp. Now, Polycarp would have been a young man in this church when this letter was received by them. And eventually, though, he became a bishop of the church and he became famous throughout Asia towards the end of his life as the last man alive who had actually known Jesus as a very young man and who had sat at the feet of the apostle John himself. However, at a ripe old age, as bishop now, he had to yet again face another outbreak of persecution, again orchestrated by the Jews. A number of Christians had already been thrown to wild animals before this old man was hunted down in the hills. The governor of Asia in that great stadium tried to persuade Polycarp to sacrifice to Caesar and by doing so save himself. So on being asked by the governor to denounce the atheists, that is Christians, Polycarp gestured at the screaming crowd surrounding him in the stadium and cried out, away with the atheists. His brave joke, though, fell on deaf ears. And again, he was commanded to curse Christ. Commanded. And this was his reply. I have served him for 86 years. And he has never done me any wrong. How can I blaspheme my king who has saved me? And so Polycarp was bound to a stake and burned to death while he prayed. So I say to you, while we can never fully understand suffering and evil, why God allows it to continue? We can't, though. It's my belief that God's allowing sin and evil to reach its ultimate so that when he returns and finally deals with it once and for all, then his glory, in contrast, will be seen to be all the more magnificent. I think that's the climax of the ages. But while we 
cannot fully understand it. Let's not try in reaction to deny it or ignore it. Rather, let's hold on to the biblical truths, the spiritual principles. That as we suffer, God stands with us. That through our suffering, he wants his glory to shine from us. And that in the end, no matter what this world and its master throw against us, yet they cannot take from us that which is most precious to every believer. That we have a life, we have a hope, a future, a destiny. We have an eternity in Christ that is untouchable. Let's hold on to that. Let's hold on to the Lord. Let's live for his glory. So like the church at Smyrna, like their bishop Polycarp, may we too be found to be faithful to the end and so receive from the Lord's hand that crown of life. Let's pray together. Father, we just bow again under the authority of your word and Lord again and again your word teaches that which opposes our flesh, which opposes our, our natural human instincts and reactions. And yet Lord, this is your word and this is your call to your people to be faithful to you to the point of death, to live for your glory to seek through this life to be made ready for heaven and the unveiling of your glory. Lord, help us to see that in this world, by faith, we have what really matters because we have Jesus. We have hope and a future. We have life and a destiny. And it's all ours through faith in Christ, with that crown of life yet to come. Lord, we give you now our praise. We bow before you now in humble faith. In Jesus' name, amen.